Well, we are gonna be continuing our study in Isaiah chapter 28 this morning. I'm gonna encourage you, if you have a Bible, to make sure that you have it handy. If you don't, you should be able to find a Bible in one of the pewbacks around you, those little black ESV Bibles. Isaiah is right in the middle of the Bible. If you were to just open it up right in the middle, chances are you'll open up right to the book of Isaiah. And we're gonna be in chapter 28. If you're not used to handling a Bible, those big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Go to the book of Isaiah. You can cheat, look at the table of contents, that's totally fine. And then look for the big number 28. That's the chapter that we're gonna be in. And we're spending a few weeks here because in many ways, God is concerned with the worship of his people. What does true worship look like? Last Sunday, we considered worship in light of two crowns, a crown of pride as well as a crown of glory. Today, in verses 7 to 22, we're going to consider two words, strange, unintelligible words and words that bring life. Next week, when we get together, we'll consider two ways Two ways in which God goes about redeeming his people and securing for himself a community of worshipers. 1906, Nazusa Street in Los Angeles, and sometime later in Topeka, Kansas, began what was called the first wave of Pentecostalism. The distinctive of this first wave was essentially a post-conversion experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this was principally evidenced by speaking in tongues. Some decades after that, in the 1950s and 60s, came a second wave, and in that wave, speaking in tongues was important. It was seen as a sign of baptism in the Spirit, but it wasn't necessarily the sign and then in the 70s came a third wave under a brother named John Wimber. Wimber's known as the father of the Signs and Wonders movement, gave birth to the, to the vineyard churches and many other ministries. And the emphasis in this wave was not so much on speaking in tongues, but on signs and wonders, on falling down, being slain in the spirit, and on prophecy over tongues, though certainly speaking in tongues does play a part. All this to say that over the course of the last hundred years, there's been a tremendous amount of emphasis on the charismatic gifts, especially speaking in tongues. Millions upon millions all over the world practice speaking in tongues. Now, Perhaps in our circles, I know some of you perhaps come from a background like this, some of you don't. And in our circles, perhaps we might look a little skeptically on some of those things and I wanna suspend all that kind of maybe potential toward a critical spirit this morning. My sermon this morning is not going to be in any way interacting with the charismatic movement or the Pentecostalism. It is not in any way going to be a polemical sermon that is seeking to firmly correct what we may perceive or not perceive to be errors in other believers. That's not the purpose of the time this morning. My purpose this morning is just to point out that over the course of the last century, this has been a primary point of conversation and it's been a primary point of confusion. It's interesting that prior to the 19th century, when you come to well-known passages in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, that primarily deal with speaking in tongues, most of the commentators and scholars 
don't really deal with speaking in tongues in the way that we think about it today. Over the course of the last hundred years, scholars since Azusa in 1906 have started to think about 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 in completely different ways. So for instance, when John Calvin commented on 1 Corinthians 14 and on strange tongues, he thought of it as, at least in principle, a way to criticize the Latin mass. You didn't think about it in terms of Pentecostalism. All that to say, in the last century, Pentecostalism has caused us, rightly or wrongly, to read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 in different ways than the church has historically done so. And in all of the emphases that have been placed on it over the course of the last century, especially in the last 30 to 40 years, and for all that is emphasized, Within each one of these three waves that I talk about, there's actually, what's interesting, is it seems to be very little emphasis on the purpose of speaking in tongues. We talk much about the experience of it. We talk about, for instance, the, the practical application of it. We talk a lot about whether it's still applicable today. Has it ceased or is it still something that Christians are doing or should be doing? But there's not a whole lot of conversation about the purpose of speaking in tongues. And that's what I want to address this morning because it is a key application to what we see in Isaiah 28. In verses 7 to 22, we're going to see essentially two points. We're going to see in verses 7 to 13, judgment by speech confused. Judgment by speech confused. And then in verses 14 to 22, we're going to see judgment by a stone rejected. Two kinds of judgment. Judgment by a stone rejected and judgment by speech confused. And in both of these, we're essentially thinking about one big idea in this passage, and it's this. That God has provided salvation through Christ and now makes it known through every language. God has made salvation known through Christ and now makes it known in every language. Just to prep you for what awaits, there are some times where listening to the preaching of the word is like going to the gym and just having a nice stroll on the treadmill. And there are other times where you go in and sitting under preaching is you got to put a little extra weight on the bar. Today's going to be one of those extra weight on the bar mornings. And I'm going to try to keep it as accessible as we can, but that's why I encourage you to have your Bibles open because we're going to be doing some word work this morning to best understand, according to Isaiah 28, what the purpose of these strange tongues are and how it relates to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verse 7 together. We've just seen in verses 1 through 6 that the northern kingdom of Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, is a kingdom full of drunks. And now in verse 7, he turns to their leaders and says this. This is Isaiah speaking. These also reel with wine and they stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink and they're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink and they reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. And for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. You notice here that the subjects are the priest and the prophet. 
Both are offices of spiritual leadership within Israel, and both function as mediators between God and the nation. The priest represented man to God, and the prophet represented God to man. But I want you to notice what marks these leaders is not godliness, it's not self-control, and it's not truth. No, Isaiah describes them here in verses 7 and 8 as reeling and staggering and stumbling. That they were to be guides for God's people, but they couldn't even guide themselves because according to Isaiah, they were swallowed by wine. And here's the irony. The stuff that they were swallowing ended up swallowing them. They've been consumed by what they were consuming. And that's how sin always works, isn't it? That it looks really attractive, promises joy, gives us a sense that we are able to control it when all of the time it is controlling us. There are high stakes for all of us, but the stakes are even higher for spiritual leaders. I heard one retired pastor Lament recently that in all of his decades of ministry, he grew more and more convinced that the pastors that he interacted with, many pastors he interacted with, were completely alien and ignorant to the doctrines of grace. Richard Baxter, some of you may know, he's an old Puritan in the 17th century, wrote a book called Reformed Pastor, a big thick book that was written to his fellow pastors, and in it, In chapter one, in paragraph one, he exhorts his fellow pastors to make sure that they are in fact in the faith and recipients of the very grace that they offer to others. Because Richard Baxter knew, this other retired pastor knew, and that just because you stand up to preach the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that you believe or have been transformed by the gospel. Such seems to be the case with these leaders And their pitiful spiritual condition is clear in the following verses. Pick it up in verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge? Here Isaiah is satirizing the leaders. He's speaking on their behalf. This is how he's accounting the way that they speak about him when he came preaching to them. Well, to whom will he speak knowledge? And whom will he explain the message? We'll tell you who. Those who are weaned from the milk. Those who are taken from the breast. Best way to know what's really in the heart of a spiritual leader is seeing how they respond to godly criticism. Godly leaders invite godly criticism. Proud leaders will be defensive and they will either attack or ridicule the one who is criticizing them. Israel's leaders are no exception. Rather than humbly receive Isaiah's criticism as godly criticism, They ridicule him in verse 9. They essentially say, who does this guy think he is? Who does he presume to be coming in here teaching and instructing us? You need to put that guy back in the nursery because his message is for preschoolers, not for leaders like us. He's just a babbler. And that's exactly what we see in verse 10. And the Hebrew language, as I read through it, in the Hebrew language, verse 10 is a play on words that's meant to sound like the stuttering words of a drunk or the babbling of a baby. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Babble, 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 blah, blah, blah. Like the peanuts teacher 
Wah, 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 wah. It's how they're hearing him. But ironically, these leaders think that Isaiah's gibberish is only fit for preschoolers. But in their drunkenness, notice this. They are the ones that are stuttering and babbling. They think they're the ones who are mature, but in fact, they are the ones who are spiritual infants. They were supposed to be godly men who were able to hear the word of God and lead the people of God according to that word. But when God's word came to them through Isaiah, they mocked Isaiah, and by mocking Isaiah, they mocked God. This is the reason for the response in verses 11 to 13. Isaiah essentially says to them, okay, you want to make jokes about babbling? You're about to get all the babbling you can handle. Follow along with me, verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, this is repose that they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. And they may go and they may fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. Isaiah tells these leaders that God will speak to them again. But the next time that God speaks, his message will not be a message of mercy, but a message of judgment. And that message is going to be delivered by God through a strange babbling language of the invading Assyrians. In other words, Isaiah says, since you've rejected God's offer of salvation, of rest and repose, verse 12, through a message that is intelligible to you, then you'll receive God's judgment through a message that is unintelligible to you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to keep this in mind because we're gonna circle back to this idea of unintelligible tongues in just a little bit. Because Paul is gonna quote these few verses, verses 11 and 12 specifically, to teach about the purpose of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. But in order to understand that and how Paul's applying it, we first have to understand the rest of the passage. So in verse 14, Isaiah is now going to turn his attention away from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is going to put his attention down back south in the primary focus of his ministry, in the southern kingdom of Judah and of Jerusalem. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we've made lies our refuge and in falsehood we've taken shelter. Isaiah is now satirizing Jerusalem in the same way that he satirized the, the leaders of the northern kingdom. And it raises a question. Can we ever look on the sins of others and grow proud? Can we ever grow a false sense of security by looking at our own lives when we compare it to the sinful lives of others and say, oh, thank God I'm not like that guy? Can we make ourselves like that Pharisee on the Temple Mount, looking down at that sinner and that tax collector and praising God that he was not a man like this one while that man looked to the temple and said, be merciful on me, God, a sinner. This is kind of what Jerusalem is thinking. Thank God we are not like the northern kingdom. 
They hear Isaiah's prophecy about Assyria coming in, and they think, good, they deserve it. Now we'll finally be safe. They're going to see the Assyrians crush the northern kingdom, and they're going to fall into a false sense of security. And that's because Judah, if you remember, had made a pact with Assyria to keep them safe against the northern kingdom. Judah was small and weak. Assyria was big and small. Small and weak Judah was really scared that the northern kingdom who had allied with Syria were going to come down, depose King Ahaz, put in a puppet king of their own choosing, and take over the southern kingdom. God says, don't worry about that. I will keep you safe. And yet, even in spite of God's reassuring word, Ahaz and Judah form an alliance with Assyria. And as we're going to see, Assyria just had their fingers crossed behind their back the whole time. They thought they had made a covenant of peace. But what they had made, according to verse 15, was a covenant of death. They thought they were secure but in fact they had made lies their refuge and they took shelter in falsehoods. Therefore, according to verse 16, says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. God says, Feel free all you want to go find your security in that covenant of death. But I've already laid down true security for my true people in a tested and proven cornerstone. What's interesting is that that phrase, I have laid, is in the perfect tense. God has already done it. Even while Israel entrusted themselves to these flimsy and these false assurances, God had already laid a proven and a precious cornerstone. And so in their unbelief, Judah and Jerusalem had laid for themselves a sandy foundation that was sure to be destroyed, but for whoever believes in verse 16, God says he's laid a sure foundation in Zion that will never be destroyed. This is one of the most oft-quoted verses in the New Testament. Both the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles apply this promise to Jesus himself. That from eternity past, God has laid this one unbreakable foundation that, as the apostle Peter explains, whoever believes in Christ will not be put to shame. Friend, if you're here this morning, I would encourage you to examine your own life and your own heart. Have you grown a false sense of security, not by looking to Christ, but by looking to others and assuring yourself that you're in fact better than them? Have you assured yourself in such a way and thus get made lies your refuge and taken shelter in falsehood? Have you, have you believed that there is something other than Christ himself that can make you safe, that can make you secure, that can make you holy and can make you happy. Friend, I want to suggest to you this morning that all of those hopes are false hopes. And that the only true hope, the only hope that in the end will not put you to shame because all other false hopes will lead to just that, is to put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put your hope in the fact that God in his mercy sent his only begotten son to become a man 
to live a life of perfect obedience in a way that Israel never could and as such proved himself to be the perfect and the true Israel. That he is the servant prophesied by Isaiah who would lay down his life for his people and thus pay for their transgressions. The very transgressions that we see outlined here in the northern and southern kingdom and I would venture to bet the very same transgressions that you and I have seen in our own lives as we have time and again thrown ourselves onto sandy foundations looking for security and peace. Friend, do you hope in the fact that Christ has not just died on a cross, he wasn't just an accident of history, he didn't just die because he couldn't run fast enough, but that God had appointed it from eternity past and as such confirmed his atoning death by raising him from the dead so that all those who trust in them lay themselves on this precious cornerstone will never die but will have sin defeated once and for all. This is what Peter means. God has laid a a foundation, a stone that you can put all of your life on, all of your sin, all of your hopes and all of your dreams and have them calibrated and secured forever in Christ. Friend, have you trusted in Christ? I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. Today would be the day that you would turn from trusting in yourself and in these false senses of security and instead that you would throw all of yourself, trust entirely and wholly in the person and work of Christ and let him be to you a cornerstone that will never be shaken, that will never shatter and that will never fail. Friends, trust in Christ. But tragically, we see what happens to Judah's false refuges. And we should take this as a lesson for ourselves in verses 18 and following. He says, then, or I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge lies and the waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through, speaking of Assyria, you will be beaten down by it. And as often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night, and it will be a sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Isaiah's just saying, you made your bed, now you gotta lay in it. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed. But strange is his deed. And he will be roused to work his work. Oh, but alien will be his work. Now therefore, do not scoff, you scoffers lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. God promises that according to his justice and righteousness in verse 17, he is going to sweep away and overwhelm every last bit of their false assurances. The Assyrians are gonna back out of their agreement with Judah and after they're done with the northern kingdom, they're gonna make a hard left and head south into Judah straight for the neck of Jerusalem. And instead of knowing true security by believing and resting in this cornerstone, Jerusalem instead, by rejecting the cornerstone, will be, as we see here, overwhelmed and beaten down and terrorized. 
precious cornerstone in Zion. Could have been their sanctuary, but they rejected that stone. So instead, they're gonna be crushed by that stone. And that's because verse 21, the Lord is gonna rise up just as he did in those same places where David defeated the Philistines. Only this time, his work will be a strange work. Strange because he won't work like he worked before. Isaiah is saying that when he rises up again in power, it won't be to deliver you as he did through David on Mount Perizim and in the Valley of Gibeon. It won't be for your deliverance. It will be for your destruction. The normal work of God has been his grace toward his people. The strange work of God will be their destruction because of their unbelief and their scoffing. And the only ones who will be saved in that day will be those who we just noted trust in God rather than scoff at God. Those who stand on Zion's cornerstone rather than stumble over it. Isaiah 28 is a really important passage for understanding God's redemptive purposes in all of history. In order to understand the significance of a passage like this one, it requires us to do a little bit of extra word work. Because here Isaiah is operating like a prosecuting attorney. That's what prophets did. He's dragging Israel into God's courtroom and he's prosecuting them according to the terms of the covenant that God made with them. So when Isaiah tells Israel that they're going to receive a message of judgment through strange language of an invading nation, Israel can't plead ignorance because God already told them that this would happen. In Deuteronomy 28, in fact, if you're looking for the terms of God's covenant with Israel, you find it in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. At the end of Deuteronomy 27, God says in that famous passage where Israel is shouting back and forth to one another on the mountain that if you obey in these ways, you will be blessed, 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 blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed, 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 cursed. And then in chapter 28, he goes on to outline exactly what those blessings and curses will be. And in verse 45, you don't have to go there. We're going to move quickly through this part. God warns them and he says this, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and you didn't serve him with joy and with gladness, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, a nation whose language you do not understand. The spiritual leaders of Israel didn't receive God's word through Isaiah with joy and gladness with heart. They rejected God's intelligible word as the babbling of a preschooler and of the stammering of a drunk. As a result, God cursed them as a nation from a faraway land whose language they couldn't understand. In other words, God told Israel through Isaiah, when the Assyrians come babbling into your kingdom, those unintelligible words will be me speaking to you. Those will be my words, and my words will be words of judgment. But this fulfillment wasn't the only application of the strange language curse of Deuteronomy 28. Because the prophet Jeremiah, nearly 150 years after Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled, picks up on the same covenant curses and in Jeremiah chapter five, you don't have to go there, I'm just setting the table, applies them to the southern kingdom, to Judah and Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says this, tell me if it sounds familiar. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel. 
It's an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. God says the same thing to the southern kingdom through Jeremiah that he said to the northern kingdom through Isaiah. When the, Babylonian, when the Babylonians come babbling into your kingdom, those unintelligible words will be my words speaking to you, and those words will be words of judgment against you. But friends, we need to understand that our Bibles don't end with the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophecies don't find their ultimate fulfillment with Assyria or with Babylon these patterns of judgment will only further escalate until they find their ultimate fulfillment in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have your finger there in Isaiah 28. Let me show you how we get there. Say, Jeff, how do we know that? How do we know that these promises or these prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in Christ? We'll look again at the language at the end of verse 13. He says that the northern kingdom will be will stumble, that is fall backwards, be broken, be snared, be taken. Boop, take that, plant it in your brain, hold on to it for just a minute. It's gonna be important. The prophecy of verse 13 needs to be understood in the context of the cornerstone of verse 16, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That the ultimate fulfillment of God's judgment against Israel through strange tongues will happen not when the Assyrians or with the Babylonians but in the context of God laying in Zion a precious cornerstone. To make sure that we're abundantly clear on this particular interpretation, take a look at another passage in Isaiah from chapter eight. Go back to Isaiah chapter eight, just a few pages to your left. We've already been there, seems like just a few days ago, doesn't it? Not too long ago. Isaiah chapter eight, beginning in verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The apostle Peter takes Isaiah chapter eight, verse 13, and applies it to Christ in the New Testament. He says, Jesus Christ is the one that you need to fear. And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, will be, according to verse 14, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many who stumble on it. And they shall, listen to the language, fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Does that sound familiar? Where else have we heard that exact language? In Isaiah 28, 13. When Isaiah says that this is what's going to happen when God judges you through strange languages, that in that day, the cornerstone will either be to you a sanctuary, or as we see here in verse 15, it will be a stumbling stone that will crush you. So what are we to conclude? God promised Israel, according to his covenant with them, that if they rejected him, he would curse them by speaking to them through the strange languages of other nations. And their ultimate rejection of God came at their rejection, not of Isaiah and not of Jeremiah, but of the chief cornerstone, that full final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 21. Go there with me. We won't come back to Isaiah 28, so you don't have to keep your finger there. Matthew 21. We're trying to understand this idea of strange languages and tongues, and how it relates to Jesus in light of the whole Bible. Matthew chapter 21. Many of you are familiar with the parable that Jesus shares beginning in verse 31 all the way through verse 33 rather, all the way through verse 41. Jesus tells a parable about a master of a house. This master plants a vineyard and he leases that vineyard to some tenants. So the master one day sends out some of his servants to the tenants and the tenants beat one, kill another and stone another. So the master sends another set of servants and the exact same thing happens again. And then finally, the master says, well, surely I'll send my son and they'll respect him. But what do they end up doing? They say, ah, here's the heir. Let's kill him too. And then we can take for ourselves his inheritance. And if you notice in verses 40 and 41, Jesus draws in Israel's religious leaders and he asks, what do you think ought to be done with these scoundrels, these tenants? And of course, they say in verse 41, kill them. And then in verse 42, Jesus says, have you never read? You always know if Jesus says, have you never read following a parable, you're in big, big trouble. And that's exactly what's happening here. Have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God is gonna be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What fruits? The fruits of the kingdom of Christ. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Sound familiar? And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What Jesus does is he takes Psalm 118 and quotes it in verse 42, which is just using the same language that we saw in Isaiah 28 and in Isaiah 8. And he applies the exact same promise in verse 44 that this stone will either be a sanctuary to you or it will be a stone that will crush you. They have rejected the stone. That's Jesus' whole point that he takes the cornerstone prophecy, he applies it to himself on the heels of this parable that taught that God has given his kingdom to a stiff-necked people who now have rejected him, ultimately in the cornerstone, and that now God is gonna take that kingdom away from them and give it to another. This language of transition is critical to understanding what's happening in Isaiah 28 and of the purpose of tongues. Jesus just told Israel's leaders that because they rejected God's word and stumbled over the cornerstone, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to judge Israel once and for all and transition to a new people under a new covenant. And that transition will be God's judgment against them. And what will that transition look like? It will come just as Isaiah promised by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue. Turn to Acts chapter two. I 
all of that Old Testament background that we just walked through, all that word work that we just did, is setting the stage for the greatest day on this side of the resurrection, and that's Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost is amazing. I'd love to spend more time here. We'll have to come back to it another day. But if you just glance through verses one through four, we see three important phenomena. We see a mighty rushing wind. We see tongues of fire. And we see, in verse four, speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there's so much that we said about each one of these, but for the sake of time, let me just summarize what's happening. Pentecost marks a transition. It marks the very transition that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 21. And that transition is marked by judgment, and that judgment is characterized by the speaking of strange tongues. It is God, the Spirit, speaking in languages that are strange. It is Pentecost, rather. It is a transition from the Old Covenant to a New Covenant, from the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom of Christ, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. And we know this is a transitional moment because this event at Pentecost is essentially a reenactment of Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. At Sinai, there was a roaring wind, fire, and a divine tongue. Here at Pentecost, we again see a roaring wind, fire, and a divine tongue. Just as Moses ascended, so the Lord Jesus Christ has now ascended. And at Pentecost, Christ comes down through his spirit, but not with the law written on stone as Moses did, but with the gift of his own spirit to write the law in the hearts of all of those who believe. This is a great transition occurring in Jerusalem on that day. And that transition, which will be blessing to the nations, is going to come through judgment against Israel. And God's judgment is going to come through God speaking to them in strange languages. Luke summarizes the event in verses 10 and 11. Look at this. He says that there's all these visitors from Rome, verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, that is, Gentiles that have converted to Judaism, as well as Cretans and Arabians, but here it is, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. But I want you to look closely at verse 12, because among those listening, there are two groups. There are those who are amazed and, oh, they want to know more. What's this all about? But then there is also a second group, a group of scoffers in verse 13 who say they are filled with new wine. And Isaiah, it's Isaiah 28 all over again. Isaiah came preaching to them and they said, you babble like a preschooler, like a stammering drunk. And when they rejected God's word as unintelligible, you remember what? Isaiah called them, he called them scoffers, just as we see here. Isaiah's words against Israel find their ultimate fulfillment at the transition event at Pentecost. Since Israel had rejected God's offer of salvation through a message that was intelligible, they now received God's judgment through a message that was unintelligible. And the gospel ends up going out away from 
Jerusalem to the rest of the nations. So what then is the purpose of strange tongues? They are a prophetic sign of judgment against unbelief. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul interprets Isaiah when he corrects the misuse of tongues in the Corinthian church. Turn to one last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Not unlike many Christians, including ourselves, the Corinthian believers had imported some of their pre-Christian religious experiences into Christian life and worship. Earlier in the letter, they love attaching themselves to particular celebrity teachers and leaders, and Paul rebukes them for that. That they had feasted and even participated in sexual immorality and pagan temples, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, you can't have anything to do with that. They had imported some of their pre-Christian religious experiences into Christian life and worship, and it's a problem that Paul takes up time and again throughout the letter. And one common characteristic of pagan temple worship in Corinth was speaking in tongues. Not necessarily the speaking in known languages, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, but ecstatic utterances. Many who were converted to Christianity were used to attending these tongue parties, And the excesses that they were accustomed to, such as sexual immorality and drunkenness, had carried over into their corporate life and worship. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you see all of this present. And one of the things that had also been imported in were these ecstatic experiences or utterances. In other words, they had confused a genuine work of the Spirit, which is what we just saw in Acts chapter 2, with what they had experienced in pagan temple worship. And then they carried their pagan practices into the church's assembly together. The Corinthians not only misunderstood the God-ordained purpose of tongues, but they were obscuring God's word and confusing both Christians and non-Christians alike in its abuse. So chapter 14 is not prescriptive for Christian worship, though some today argue that it is. While there are some basic principles that are given underlying the entire chapter, Paul's primary concern in chapter 14 is to correct this uniquely Corinthian error. And I say uniquely because it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't have to take up this topic in any other letter anywhere else in the New Testament. Let me just summarize what the chapter's saying and then we'll pick up in verse 20. In verses one through five, Paul tells them, listen, I know that you all wish that you spoke in tongues, but I wish that you all spoke prophecy. For Paul, prophecy carried a similar role to teaching and preaching. That's what we saw Isaiah doing to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It spoke forth God's word for the edification of God's people and the evangelization of non-Christians. Paul says, I wish you all did that more than I wish you spoke in tongues. Because when you speak in tongues, Paul says, in verses one through five, you're only speaking God's word back to God. That's assuming you're doing it correctly. Nobody profits because nobody can understand you. You speak mysteries, and by mysteries, we should understand divine revelation. But when you prophesy, everybody can understand you, and you build up the church. And so in verses six through 12, Paul goes on to tell them that speaking mysteries 
is a useless thing unless their tongue is made intelligible through an interpreter. Of course, in verse 10, you notice that that shouldn't be a problem if they're speaking in an actual language and not gibberish, not ecstatic utterances. Because every language, Paul says, every language in the world has an intelligible meaning. And that as long as that tongue remains unintelligible, it doesn't build up the church. And that, Paul says in verse 12, building up the church, that should be your primary motivation. Of course, Paul is acting like a brilliant pastor here. He is just planting basic principles and when fully grown, will choke out all of the abuses and errors. Notice he doesn't come in and just say, stop it. Just like many of us in our own experiences when we step into a situation that is just fraught with, with error and trouble, we don't change everything all at once. We just begin establishing some core principles, planting these core seeds, knowing that in time, as those grow up into fruition, they'll choke out and remove the weeds that had grown. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is a patient pastor. By the way, I think he does the same thing with slavery. Paul is not pro-slavery, even though he speaks about slavery. When Paul is telling slave masters and slaves on how to relate to one another, he's not affirming slavery. He's assuming in a subversive way that once slave masters and slaves treat one another with love and respect according to the gospel, it will undermine the very institution itself, such that the reality in Christ, as we see in Galatians 3, there is neither slave nor freeman. All are one in Christ, would come to fruition. Well, Paul's doing the same thing here. He's being pastorally subversive, planting essential principles with these childlike believers so that over time they might mature. And in maturing, they would long for those things that work not to their own personal benefit, but the benefit of others. In fact, Paul even goes so far as to say at the end of the section, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But quote, whoop, just lost my page. Quote, look at this, verse 19, in church, key phrase, I would rather speak five intelligible words that build up than 10,000 unintelligible words that profit nothing. And so after telling them what they should desire and what they should do in verses 1 through 19, Paul begins in verses 20 to 25 telling them why they should do so. He says, here is the purpose of tongues. Beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Just like Israel's spiritual leaders, the Corinthians thought they were mature, but they were thinking like children. Paul has to address them in this way all throughout the letter. You think that you need solid food, but I've got to keep giving you milk because you keep acting in the exact same way you acted when you were without the Spirit and you were apart from Christ in the world. And he's saying the same thing here. One way that we know that 1 Corinthians 14 and the practices here are not prescriptive is because Paul is speaking to them as immature infants. This is not to be emulated. It's to be corrected in the way that we would correct our own children in their error. 
That's exactly what Paul is doing. What they thought was spiritually good was in fact spiritually bad. And I wonder whether Paul made this connection between the Corinthian church and Israel because when Paul looked to explain the purpose of strange tongues, notice in verse 21, he quotes from Isaiah 28. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Using Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, which we looked at at the beginning of the sermon, Paul explains that the whole purpose of tongues is judgment. And he explains further this principle in verses 22 and 23. Thus, or therefore, on the basis of my understanding of the Old Testament on the basis of how I am under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reading the whole Bible. Therefore, verse 22, tongues are a sign. They signify something, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, which I've already told you before, you should desire even more, is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, but outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul says in verses 22 and 23 that the whole purpose of God speaking through strange tongues is what? To be a sign. But a sign of what? A sign of judgment. And it's a sign of judgment to whom? Not to believers, but to unbelievers. Prophecy, on the other hand, the speaking forth of God's word is also a sign, but notice he says that it is a sign not to unbelievers, but to believers. Here's what's important for you to understand. The difference between these two signs, between tongues and prophecy, is not its content. It is both divine speech. When used correctly, both speak God's words. The difference between tongues and prophecy is intelligibility. Prophecy is intelligible. Tongues are unintelligible. And according to Isaiah 28, this is why Paul, this is why he went there, unintelligibility is not a sign of blessing. That's what the Corinthians thought in their ecstatic utterances. He says, no, it's a sign of judgment. And this much is made clear in Paul's practical anecdotes in verses 23 to 25. And in those handful of verses, Paul tells them if unbelievers come into the corporate gathering of the church and you're all speaking in unintelligible tongues, then in effect, you are speaking a message of judgment to them. Why? Because they won't be able to hear the word of Christ. And if they don't hear the word of Christ, then they cannot respond positively to the word of Christ in faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Verse 23, they're just going to think that you're a bunch of crazy people. 
Oh, but if you prophesy instead, if you speak the word of Christ in an intelligible way, and by the way, this is what I think Paul means in calling them to interpret. If your tongue is really truly a gift from God and it's speaking divine utterances, which many in the Corinthian church were not doing, then it has to be an intelligible language and can be interpreted. And once that tongue goes from being unintelligible to intelligible through the medium of interpretation, then it ceases at that moment to be a tongue and now becomes prophecy for the sake of building up the church. This is what Paul's saying. Oh, I want you to long not for tongues, long for prophecy. I want you to long to speak God's word in intelligible ways so that they will be able to hear the word of Christ. That word which is living and active and able to search down to the very secrets of men, that which is able to search the heart of a man and that they might respond positively to the word of Christ. And get this in verse 25, worship God and declare that God is really among you. In other words, if you prophesy, that is speak God's word in an intelligible way, unbelievers may get converted. And they may even prophesy in return. And the church is built up. But here's what's even more incredible about Paul's argument. Notice that last line of verse 25 about worshiping and declaring. That is another quote by Paul. And there he's alluding to a promise in Isaiah 45, 14. Just listen. This is what Isaiah says. And this is in the context of a messianic prophecy. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans, men of stature, all Gentiles, all enemies of Israel, they are going to come over and they're going to be yours. They're going to follow you. They shall come over and change and bow down to you. They're going to do so willingly, binding themselves, enslaving themselves to you. And they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God beside them. In Isaiah 28, God promised to speak judgment against his people by the strange tongues of foreigners. But in Isaiah 45, which speaks of the Messianic age, God promises that he will again speak to his people through foreign tongues, only this time, instead of speaking unintelligible tongues, they'll speak intelligible prophecy, God is really among you. It will be every tribe, every tongue. That is what the cornerstone is bringing about. Why then should the Corinthian church desire to prophesy rather than speak in strange tongues? Because unintelligible tongues are a sign of divine judgment against a monoethnic people, the kingdom of Israel, under an old obsolete covenant. But intelligible prophecy, Isaiah 45, that builds up and converts, that is a sign of divine messianic blessing to a multi-ethnic people, the church, under a new and better covenant in Christ. Why is Paul trying to move them from tongues to prophecy? Why should prophecy be desired over tongues? And the answer is simply because Christ is better than Moses and Zion is better than Sinai And the gospel is better than the law. See also Pentecost. Isn't that amazing? 
so much confusion. Just a handful of brief applications. Number one, when we do all of this, we need to understand that what the New Testament teaches, it never teaches anything novel or new. Everything the New Testament teaches finds its seeds in the Old Testament. What's planted as an acorn in the Old Testament grows up into oak trees in the New Testament. That means that when we come to things in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, we should ask ourselves, what does the whole Bible have to say, and how does it inform this particular teaching? Rather than just cherry-picking a handful of New Testament verses and thinking this is how we're to apply it, we need to be whole Bible thinkers, just as we've done this morning. It affirms the unity of the Bible. Essentially, we need to learn more and more to read the Bible the way that Paul reads the Bible, just as he demonstrated here. It's just the way the apostles applied the Old Testament. But secondly, it should cause us to praise God for his glory and his grace in history. Because in all of those prophecies that we find from Isaiah and Jeremiah to the northern and southern kingdom, behind all of that was a covenant of grace established by God in eternity past through a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son so that he might bring to himself into that covenant, into the nourishing root of Abraham, his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God did all of this so that most of us might be saved by the grace of Christ. We should think a lot that if God has gone to such great lengths and so much detail and has spoken so much about saving us into his church, then why would we think that he says so little about how we're then to function as a church? And that leads to the third point, that you and I have to aim to make the word of God intelligible in our church. That because we belong to a new age, a messianic age, the kingdom of Christ, by faith through grace, in the cornerstone, because he is the one upon whom we have been established, we are no longer looking to speak words of judgment, unintelligible things. That redemptive historical moment has passed. Instead, we are looking to speak words that are intelligible, that build up, that edify the church, that allow non-Christians to hear the word of Christ and to respond by faith. And we do so in every tongue, among every tribe, in every nation, around the whole world until Jesus comes back. That's the mission of the church. Let us not be a people that speaks judgment excluding those who would otherwise hear the gospel of Christ. Oh, let us be people that speak the words of the grace of the gospel. Let's pray.